Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. As I'm falling asleep, I get a solution to a problem I've been working on at Stanford. And the, the solution comes to me and immediately my first thought is, I'll remember that in the morning. But then I thought, no, no, I should write it down. I should do my, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to keep telling people that they need to do this. So, and I kind of wrestled with myself, honestly, because for, you know, five minutes, I'm kind of, you know, chanting the idea to myself, seeing if I can remember it. So I don't forget it. Right. Finally, I roll over. I'm like, forget it. It's not worth it. I'm just going to write this thing down. So I write it down, kind of disrupt my sleep, right? I was comfortable. I got all the pillows situated, you know, and messed all that up, wrote it down. And then I go to sleep you know, 15, 20 minutes later. Well, when I woke up in the morning, what's amazing is the idea was there. The first thing that I thought was this idea. And I go, my first thought was, oh my goodness, I knew I'd remember it, right? But then my next thought was I looked at the notebook. The idea that I had remembered was different than the idea I wrote down. I had a second totally novel solution to the problem. And if you had asked me, if you'd put a lie detector on me, I would have sworn it's the same idea that I woke up thinking about, right? And so the point there is we, we're just, we're, we overestimate our ability to remember. We overestimate our ability to, um, to hold these things. And so having a simple practice, as simple as keep a notebook by the bed does wonders for our ability to solve problems in novel ways. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jeremy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across you by way of Lighty Klotz, our former guest who wrote one of my favorite books, Subtract. And anytime another guest refers somebody, I almost never even have to read their bio or find out what they're about. I just say yes, because I always know it'll be good. Uh, but before we get into your work and your book, I wanted to start by asking you what you might think is an odd question, but I kind of see you as a social scientist. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and career? Interesting question. Um, you know, I would say I was a little bit between groups. So I, um, when I was 15, my family moved from Oklahoma to a suburb north of Dallas. And so I had the chance to kind of start over in a sense. And I moved to Dallas. Uh, I was a minority in the school district where I attended high school, public high school. And I floated in a couple of different worlds. One world was basketball, uh, where I was one of the only white guys on the basketball team. And the other world was the soccer team, where I was one of the only white guys on the soccer team. And um, I floated between those two sports and those two worlds. And there were a couple of good friends that I had, um, but I was mostly kind of an in-betweener. And I kind of floated between groups. And then, of course, I really cared about my studies. Um, and so. I, you know, was always comparing test results with the, you know, with whoever was best in the class. I wanted to be next to them to, to, uh, compare grades at the end of the, of the test. Mm -hmm. 
So I mean, how did that play out later in your life? And do, when you say in-betweener, we talk, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a British TV show called The In-Betweeners, um, which is hilarious. But were you like, you know, nerdy in-betweener, popular in-betweener? Uh, and, you know, what did you learn about human beings, you know, when you're able to sort of shift between social groups so easily? Or navigate multiple um, social groups? I don't, yeah, what kind of, I haven't seen the show. Um, I think that... I, uh, you know, I ran for class president my senior year and my best friend, Vincent Walford, uh, jokes with me to this day that he crushed me. It was my stupidity, perhaps, or, uh, hubris that led me to run against the person who had won for class president freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. But I came in, I said, Hey, I've got a chance. So, uh, Vincent likes to give me a hard time about that. But I think I, I had enough friends and I had enough maybe, you know, cross, uh, you know, group appeal that I thought, or, or at least was deluded into thinking that I had a chance. Um, but you know, what, what did I learn? I think, um, one thing I learned was people have radically different lives than I do, you know, and where I'm coming from and what I'm seeing is just a small fraction of the human experience. And I'll never forget. I was at my friend, a really good friend's house. And he told me, the story of being jumped out of his gang. And, you know, as a fairly sheltered, you know, kid in, from Oklahoma, I knew nothing about gang life. I knew nothing about that activity. And as he shared a story with me, I was just, it's like, you know, imagine that a curtain gets opened on a window you didn't even know was in a room, right? You know, it's just like, wow, there's something there that I had no idea about. And I feel like that's, that's, one of the things that happened for me is I was learning about different worlds that I didn't even know existed. Hmm. Now, you know, I, I think it's, it's funny that you know, you're in a place like Texas. I, I grew up in Texas too, but in a much smaller town maybe than you did uh, nice. in College Station. But you mentioned, you know, being a minority, which is funny because like a white person in Texas rarely is a minority. So what... Yeah, like, how did that shape your sort of perception of the world? Um, well, that's it. You know, I've never thought much about that, to be honest with you. Um, I think I was having to learn, you know, what are the rules of the game in different social groups and different communities and what, what is valued and, you know, what gets emphasized, what gets de-emphasized. And I was having to, I think now, you know, the, the phrase is kind of code shifting or something like that, code switching. Code switching and I think yeah. for me, yeah, I think it involved a lot of that. I mean, unbeknownst to me, that's not, that wasn't a word that we called it at the time, but I think really learning kind of who and what to be in what context was, there were kind of unwritten rules, you know, and interestingly enough, you fast forward to my life now at the D school. One of the things that we talk a lot about is how you've got to be aware of which you is showing up to this meeting or this session or this effort, right? And the you who's divergent and, and expansive is very you, very different from the you that's judgmental and critical. And that's not to say that one is better than the other necessarily, but there are default modes. There are default norms by group. And to at least call attention to, we call it, you know, mindful of process, but to at least call attention to what me is useful to show up right now I feel like is something that maybe I got a little bit of an education in that I've never really thought about that before this moment, to be honest. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask that, so that sort of awareness, if you're at a place that, you know, for the most part, the students who probably come to Stanford are coming from relatively privileged circumstances, you know, probably a handful of exceptions. What do you think it takes for people to develop that sort of awareness of, of, what version of them is showing up? Because I think that a lot of people don't necessarily have it per se. Like it's one of those things I feel like you don't really even think much about until you get older. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I, I think that the, the tendency to conform is very strong, you know, and most people because they have one community or one culture unbeknownst to, or, you know, a, it could be a discipline and the way of, you know, a, or a school, right. Uh, but the way of thinking is, is becomes universal and it becomes the default bias as just a function of participating and succeeding in that environment. And so I think part of what makes the D school special actually is it's a school crossing of sorts. And so 
there's this kind of melting pot of disciplinary expertise and the ways that lawyers approach problems are very different from the ways that mechanical engineers approach problems, which is very different than the way a journalist approaches the problem. And so when you create this, you know, this intersection of sorts, I think that you've got to be a little bit more explicit about what are the rules of engagement here? And um, because nobody really knows whose expertise is most relevant or who should be the leader of the meeting, you know? And so uh, giving some language to process, I mean, now Amy Edmonds has talked about how important that is to psychological safety, right? Having shared language, having shared context. When, when you're, when you're in a like community, that shared context can be implicit. When you come into a mixed environment, that shared context actually has to become explicit for folks to know how to behave. Mm, yeah. Well, you're an athlete. So one thing I always wonder, particularly with people who play high school sports is what kinds of things from your two sports did you learn that affected your life later? I mean, for me, it was music and which, you know, led to habits, discipline. In fact, I just, you know, had dinner with my ninth grade band director after 30 years the other night. And I told him, I was like, you know what? I wouldn't be where I am if it hadn't been for you. Uh, mm. You taught me what it meant to practice. You taught me, you know, how to develop habits. And I always, I feel like so many athletes kind of share a similar experience. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the sense that you can always dig deeper, I think, was is a pretty profound one. I'll never forget in soccer practice one day, our coach had us do a super hard leg workout, like, uh, you know, probably the most difficult we were doing squats and, um, and deadlifts and, you know, we're working our quads, our hamstrings, our calves, everything. And then when we thought practice was over, he made us run the mile and we had to run it for time. And I'll never forget when I crossed the finish line, it was 535, fastest mile I had ever run up to that point, fastest mile probably I've run to this day. And it was after I thought I was done, you know? And to me, that that lesson has always stuck with me yeah. that you have more in the tank. There's more that you can give. And yeah. um, the other thing I would say is uh, one of my coaches, I'll never forget, you know, we're doing push-ups and you almost get to fatigue and you're ready to give up. And he basically said something to the effect of, this is when you start to build muscle. You're not building mm -hmm. muscle when it's not hard. But now that you're at the point yeah. of fatigue, this is where you build muscle. And to me, it's a great metaphor for, you know, for exerting effort in all sorts of arenas and business and life is recognizing just because it's difficult doesn't make it wrong. In fact, it can make it much, much more rewarding, right? It's kind of the zone of proximal development as the, as, you know, educational psychologists call it. When you're right there at the edge of your comfort zone, that's actually when you're growing and developing. And I think sports kind of taught me to value that zone in a way that I hadn't uh, that, that I might not have known it otherwise, or maybe I would have learned it in another way, but that's how I learned it. Well, so I'm curious, what was the narrative uh, about careers and making your way in the world uh, around your parents' house? Because I feel like, you know, people who end up at the D school or teaching there don't seem to have linear trajectories, like pretty much every single person that I interview. And, you know, you're, you just wrote a book about creativity. So, you know, all too well how pretty much nothing in life is linear, despite the fact that we're conditioned to think it is. Yeah. 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 Growing up, I mean, my background is, is unique to me. It's, but it's probably, um, not unique in the sense that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's weird and everybody's background is weird and we all think that we're the exception and I'm exceptional to me, but everybody's exceptional. But my version of exceptional is my dad was a preacher, um, in Tulsa and, my mom was a waitress. She worked at uh, Steak and Ale, you know, which was a kind of, you know, a steak, uh, kind of like a precursor to Outback maybe. Um, and she waited tables and then she worked at Dillard's um, and at the Estee Lauder makeup counter. And I, you know, when I was, you know, 10 years old, probably I started babysitting other kids in the church because I was the preacher's kid. So, you know, I'm, you know, the, the most supposedly the most trustworthy person. So starting at about 10 years old, I'm babysitting other kids. Starting at 11, I start a lawn mowing business. I'm mowing, you know, the yards of people in the church and things like that. I had a, I had a particular love for the people who had self-propelled lawn mowers because we didn't. So I loved going to their house and using their mower. Um, and then, you know, the, the second I could get a job, which was when I turned 15, I got a job at Chick-fil-A. I worked the drive through I was employee of the year at Chick-fil-A. They gave me a, um, a, uh, what's it called? A tie dye t-shirt that had a picture of a cow wearing a wig on it. That was my, that was my reward, um, for, you know, having the best drive through times of the, of my location in Louisville, Texas. But, you know, when I think about career, a lot of it was shaped by, you know, my dad's sense of, uh, responsibility in, uh, you know, as a, as a preacher, and then he actually went to law school when I was in fifth grade. He decided that he, um, he wanted to, he didn't want our family to, to, to uh, make a living from, you know, religious activity. And yeah. so he, he, and he wanted, if he was going to preach, he wanted to be able to do it, you know, for free and not be paid, which means he needed another job. So when I was in fifth grade, you know, he's later in life, he decided to go to law school. And so I saw that, you know, his, you know, working diligently you know, on behalf of the church during the day and then at night doing law school. And then that's why we moved to Dallas when I was 15, because he became an attorney and he would preach on the weekends as kind of a gift of service. But then he would work at a law firm. He worked at a really large law firm. And so to me, if I thought about what my jobs were, I remember when I was 10, there's this, I think it's in one of my bios somewhere, but my dad said, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up, buddy? And I said, uh, one of those guys that carries a box with handles on it. Um, they look important, you know, people, 
they're in a tie. They've got that box with a handle, which is what I, that's, I didn't know the word briefcase, but I just thought, man, they look like they got it going on, you know, and I don't want to work at Estee Lauder. I don't really want to work at Chick-fil-A. I don't want to be a preacher. And now (laughs) I don't think I want to be a lawyer either. So I guess, I guess I want to be one of those guys that carries a box with handles on it. But I didn't really have language for career. You know, I didn't really have any, you know, the only other thing I would say is when people ask me what I want to be when I was a kid, I would say a medical lawyer. And it was just because it was the mashup of the two most prestigious things I knew. You know, it's like medicine. Wow. It takes like seven years to go to medical school, you know, and law, it takes another three. And people say, well, that's a lot of school. And I'd say, yep. And to me, that was a validation that that must be a good path because it involves so much work, you know, yeah. um, but I didn't have a, a view towards entrepreneurship. I didn't have uh, an appreciation for creativity or anything like that until much later. And that's not, I certainly not the fault of my upbringing or anything like that. It's just, that's, that's not what I was exposed to. We kind of, we know what we know. And so yeah. I would say it wasn't actually till I was in business school at Stanford, you know, a, a long time later that my world just got rocked by the number of, po- of potential career possibilities available to an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one, one last question, going up with a dad as a preacher, I feel like, you know, I, I hear two sides of this coin, like, where somebody is raised in a family where your religion is a big deal and they rebel and they rebel like there's no tomorrow or they just take mm. to it and they're almost, you know, uh, fanatical about it. So mm. for, like, how did that impact you? Do you mean in terms of which path I took, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I guess like, you know, you, you mentioned that you were seen as the most trustworthy sort of, uh, you know, person that people could leave right. their kids with. So how Ten, true was that? old in the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, did yeah. you get into the same kinds of trouble that all teenagers do, you know, drinking, whatever, like certain things, or were some of these things just not part of your life because your dad's a preacher? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say some of the, some things were just not a part of my life because my dad was a preacher. You know, it's drinking was just totally off limits. And let's not say that you can't break the rules. I'm the eldest. And I think generally probably eldest are more rule followers. So mm-hmm. I don't, you I know, in every family it's different. And even, and even in our family, different people take different paths. For me, I would say outwardly, there was definitely, you know, obedience um, and kind of adherence to the instructions that were given to me. And I, I, I think I was largely protected by that. Um, but, you know, inside, in my heart, there was all sorts of rebellion and defiance and there was all sorts of exploration, you know, under the cover of night, so to speak, where, you know, I was exploring and um, and indulging desires that you know, I would say in my conscience, I knew we're wrong, not because, you know, my parents necessarily told me that or because our, you know, faith necessarily spoke to those things directly. But I feel, you know, like I'll never forget when I got, I bought the uh, Dangerous Minds soundtrack, you know, that song, mm-hmm. um, Coolio, you know, Gangster's Paradise, you know, Gangsta's and Paradise, I would listen yep. to it. I, w- I would listen to it on my headphones and I would feel so guilty, you know. Because I knew it's like this guy's cursing. This is bad. This this CD has one of those parental advisory labels on it. Um, so there were things like that where you know outwardly, you know, I was very polite. I was very respectful. I was very obedient. But there were still, you know, secrets. And I've you know I've since tried to live a life without secrets. You know, live a life in the light as much as possible. But you know, I think that's part of our growth process as well. We're always kind of growing in our understanding of what that means, you know, so, and that's a journey for me, just like anybody else. So what was the trajectory that led you to the D school and ultimately to writing of this book of all the books that you could write? Yeah, I, um, I thought I wanted to do economic development. I had, um, when I was in college, I worked in Bolivia for a summer at a incubator, um, in, in a university in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And that was really eye-opening for me, you know, visiting entrepreneurs, visiting people trying to build businesses. And I didn't know much about it, honestly, um, but I was, I was compelled by the opportunity. I was invited by a finance professor there and I did that. And that was very interesting to me. And then a couple of years later, um, before I went to business school, I spent the summer in Zambia working at an AIDS orphanage. And again, it was a very eye-opening experience. And I really, I had this belief in uh, economic development and, you know, poverty alleviation and things like that. And um In my, but yet in my professional career, I had been a management consultant. I was working at a strategy consulting firm called Boston Consulting Group. And 
they had offered to send me to business school. And I thought, oh, great, I'll come. And then they'll, and they pay for it. They have this package, you know, if you qualify per your performance at the firm, you know, you get, you can get sponsored to go to business school. You come back and work off your obligation after the next couple of years. And it's, you know, I was really about, you know, I chose my university, University of Texas, because it was the cheapest place and I got the best scholarship there. So I was always very, you know, dad being a preacher, mom working at the mall, I was always very mindful of expenses. And so, you know, got the cheapest kind of school opportunity I could for best value, perhaps. Um, and then, you know, I see an opportunity to go to business school, basically if with a free ride, it's like, well, that's, I've got to do it. You know, that's, that's the most responsible thing to do. And so I did that, which unbeknownst to me, you know, I wouldn't end up continuing down that path. I didn't know that at the time, but one of the unintended consequences of that was it knowing what job I was quote unquote going to do after graduation made me much more liberal in my search for a summer internship. So most, most folks in business school, especially if they're making a career pivot, they're trying to find jobs that are, you know, their next field. You know, if they want to go into hedge funds, they're like really looking for a job at a hedge fund or whatever. Right. Well, because I already knew what I was going to do after school, I could be much more adventurous in my search. And so I basically said, you know, to my wife and to the career counseling office and things like that. I want to work in the developing world. I believe in economic development. I want to work at a startup that's got venture funding and, you know, and I want to be doing some kind of good in the world. And I got connected with a really cool startup in India that had raised some money to basically uh, sell solar powered lights to homes that live off the grid that are burning kerosene in their homes in their rural areas of India. And that just, it kind of ticked all the right boxes for me. So I went there just to get this, you know, diversifying experience in the developing world, thinking that long-term that's what I wanted to do. Well, when I got there, you know, I'm working on spreadsheets, kind of typical MBA, uh, you know, business development stuff. And there are designers there working on the product. And I kept being compelled by what they're doing in their studio. I kept kind of finding myself wandering over there and being curious about it and asking questions about it. And you know, over, over the course of time, they started going, man, Jeremy, you're de-schooly. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought it was an insult. So I say, you know, you're de-schooly. You know, what are you talking about? And, uh, they'd say, no, no, no. I mean, what that means is that you'd be a good fit at this place called the de-school. Have you been there? And I, I hadn't. They said, okay, you got to go check it out. Um, you, you would really, you'd be a really good fit there. So in my second year of business school, when I came back to Stanford, I started taking my elective credits there at the D school, you can do that. You, you can, um, you know, take classes as an elective. And I just fell in love and that, and I realized, wow, there's a kind of work that's really hard, but that can be enjoyable because the work I'd been doing prior to that was really hard and I didn't enjoy it. This work was still rigorous and challenging, which I valued because of my upbringing, but I really had fun doing it. I really relished the opportunity to do the hard work. And that was a kind of a light bulb moment for me when I realized that work can be hard, but rewarding or hard and rewarding. And, um, and so at the end of that year, my second year, when I was supposed to go back to my consulting firm, the D school offered me a one-year fellowship. They extended a one-year program for me. They kind of this faculty development program at the time where for a year you can take time and, and teach. And I reached out to my firm. I mean, this is 2009, so it's in the financial crisis. I, didn't, I don't think I realized how much leverage I had there, but they were happy to have somebody off their books for another year. And so I ostensibly joined for a year-long fellowship. And over the course of that year, it became so clear, wow, this is something special. And this is a unique contribution I can make that's uniquely suited to my personality and interests and abilities. And that totally derailed my, my, you know, best laid plans, so to speak. Hmm. Wow. Well, let's get into the book. I mean, I think that, you know, the thing that I loved about this book was that it was my creativity experience in a nutshell, you know, as I was saying here before, the only reason I've ever written anything worth reading is because I write a lot. And you say that, you know, one, uh, you know, what truly distinguishes our approach to creativity is its relentless focus on a concept we call idea flow. We'll define that term specifically in the next chapter, but the gist is that quantity drives quality. And the thing that I think that people resist is the idea that 
oh, I can create really you know, lousy stuff. It, it, I, you would not believe the amount of people that I hear tell me, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I need to be inspired to write or I need to do this and this. And it's like, that's really not how it works. So right, let's talk right. about why that is. Like, why do people resist this whole concept of bad ideas? Because every single person you ever talk, even Seth Godin has said, he's like, the key to having lots of good ideas is to have lots of bad ones. Yes. Yeah, I think it's because it's it's really hard to separate quality from the word idea, right? I mean, anywhere I go in the world, there's a lot of cultural differences between, say, Japan and Israel, right? Huge cultural mm-hmm. differences. But, you know, I've, I've had the fortune of getting to teach in both those places. And when I come and they say, hey, what are you going to teach us? And I say, I'm going to teach you how to come up with ideas. I get the same response, even though they're different cultures. You know what, you know what they say? They say, how do you come up with a good idea? <laughs> They go, oh, I didn't, who said anything about good? I didn't say I was going to teach you how to come up with a good idea. I said I was going to teach you how to come up with ideas. But the point is that it's so prevalent, this notion of good. We can't separate our uh, our concept of quality from the notion of an idea. And I think that that's part of what is challenging for people is when they think of ideas, they think about good ideas. They think about things that work. They think about things they like. And that's a that's a mistaken notion, right? The as Linus Pauling said, the Nobel Prize winning chemist, you know, that to have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. And uh-huh. I don't think people really appreciate the difference between a good idea and a lot of ideas or the need to have a lot of ideas to have a good idea, right? Yeah. Well, maybe one other thing you say is when attempting something new, we're fighting against the brain's bias. The problem when it comes to our ideas, however, is that we're terrible at tearing, telling apart the winners and losers until we've tried them. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that. It's like, oh, this is going to be, you know, some brilliant, you know, blog post and crickets. And, you know, when I'm just writing something that I'm curious about or, you know, have no idea what it's going to do, like the, the handful of pieces that I've had go viral, I could have never predicted that that was going to be the result. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think that happens a lot. I, I hear that a lot. I had no idea that this piece was going to go viral. I had no idea that this video was going to be the one. And I think for folks who who practice, who have an orientation around output, they can appreciate that they can't really predict the success of any one thing, but they can predict that doing lots of things will result in success. Uh-huh. And what a, what a lot of people, you know, most people, if they're faced with a problem, they think in terms of what's the answer. Yeah. And that's, that's just wrong. I mean, very few of us are mathematicians, right? Math problems maybe have one right answer, although you talk to mathematicians, they kind of burst our bubble and they go, actually, even math problems have more than one answer, which is just mind bending. But very few of us are mathematicians facing straightforward problems with only one solution. Most of us are facing problems for which there are a thousand potential solutions. And Mm -hmm. this idea of just searching for the right answer and whether we know it or not, whether we say that or not, that's actually what we do. It's a bias known as the Einstein effect, where we effectively we give up the search after finding a seemingly good solution um, that prevents us from identifying better solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let, let's actually talk about this framework because I think the thing that I liked so much was that it was incredibly tactical. Um, so you actually talk about sort of generating ideas. And of course, naturally, the thing that stood out to me the most is somebody who literally captures everything, especially now that I have uh, network thought-based note-taking tool like MEM, where you can, you know, connect ideas with bi-directional links and capture ideas. You know, you have spontaneous insight without having to take action. But you say this, and this is like probably one of my favorite highlights in the book, because I was like, oh, this is what anybody who does knowledge management needs to know. If you want to remember something, write it down right now in the moment. Show the brain that what, you know, what matters to you by taking out that pen. Otherwise, even if you retain the core of an idea later, you'll have lost the context and detail that made it such a vital and interesting one when you had it. Um, and that, I think, is is so powerful, and yet people don't understand why. Because yeah. in my experience, it's always been, okay, what you're doing at this point is you're planting a seed, and you just don't know when it will bear fruit. I mean, I have probably hundreds of half-baked ideas for blog posts. You know, some that I wrote a sentence about, some that I wrote, like, two sentences about. So talk to me about the actual, like, sort of neuroscience behind this. Like, why is this so effective? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, the truth is we can only hold so much in our working memory at any time, right? And we also overestimate our ability to recall information. At the D School, even if you take things like an interview, um, if you're interviewing a customer about a new product or service or about a problem that they're having, we, we often say interviewing is a team sport. Because one person's got to be there to be present, to be available, to be attentive to the individual you're speaking with. But you've got to have somebody else there capturing the data or the conversation that's coming out. Because if you don't capture it, it didn't happen. You'll uh-huh. leave the conversation and you'll have very, very poor recollection because it actually requires bandwidth to be available and to be attentive and to be present. And that bandwidth can't be dedicated to remembering stuff, right? And So what we believe is you should have a discipline of documentation. You should be rigorous about writing things down. It's simple. I mean, you said, you mentioned tools. I mean, the simplest tool is keep a notebook in your back pocket Mm -hmm. and have the discipline of writing ideas down. This is what it's this. It's the simplest thing you can do to increase your likelihood of a breakthrough is actually write ideas down. Mm -hmm. And yet for many people, they don't even have that simple practice in their life. 
Yeah. So I think that this is the other part that struck me is that you say that it isn't enough to write every idea down, but pair the discipline of documentation with the rigor of review. Mm. As the old saying goes, the faintest link is better than the sharpest memory. And the reason I think that that struck me so much, um, you may have come across it. Sanka Ahrens, uh, who's been a guest on the show, wrote this book called How to Take Smart Notes, which is based on this 60-year-old note-taking system created by a German social scientist named Nicholas Luhmann, mm. where, you know, his note-taking method was not what most of us do, which is what I did. And you probably see this in your students, too. Like, I, I saw it at Berkeley as an undergrad, you know, and it explained why I got such piss-poor grades where people just highlight and underline things and then they don't actually understand, but they memorize. And then when you get to an exam, you learn something in a context, you're tested in a context you've never seen before. Right. So at least that's my interpretation of this. But talk to me about, you know, sort of the way you guys think of this in terms of, you know, idea development. Yeah, the 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 core neuroscience here is our brains don't create from scratch. If you think about an idea, we're not, creating something from nothing. And if you think that that's what an aha or an idea is, then you're, you're going to, you're going to be a a breakthrough is more like a break in. It's going to catch you off guard. It's going to surprise you. But if you start to realize that ideas are simply combinations of things you already know or things that you're learning, then all of a sudden you go, wow, you start to really value those collisions. That's what Arthur Kessler called creativity, the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. And so you've got these notes, for example, well, you can collide them even with your own brain, you know, and the the me of next week that reads through some of my ideas is very different than even the me that wrote them down, the context I'm dealing with, the problems I'm dealing with, the questions I'm trying to answer. And so there's always possibilities for new connections. And so if you think about being diligent to review your notes, on some kind of regularity, you should look through your files. You should look through your notebooks and reassess the potential connections there and uh, connections being the definition of ideas, reassess the fruitfulness of potential connections to new work, to new relationships, to new problems, to new questions, et cetera. And some of the most disciplined and diligent entrepreneurs that we know, you know, take Henrik Wordland, for example, founder of BarkBox and pre-hype of really successful venture firm. Henrik is always keeping a notebook. He says he fills a notebook every 10 days to two weeks. But then what he does is fascinating. He'll read through the notebook. He takes out his next notebook and he transcribes whatever's most interesting from the past notebook onto the first page of the next notebook uh-huh. so that he, so that he can make peace with and throw away the old stuff. But he's kept the stuff that he feels like is relevant, that really matters, et cetera. And then he's got that record. And so he's just got this kind of revolving process, but he doesn't just do that. He said, you know, he has a rule. We tell the story in the book, but he's got a rule um, with his wife that the only technology that he's allowed to have in the bedroom, because he's always got, you know, technology going like we all do. He can have a Google home device because he knows he has ideas and his wife, you know, says no phones in the bedroom, but he can summon the Google home device and he can say an idea and it sends it to an email and a Trello board for him to mm-hmm. review later, right? Yeah. But the, the point is he's so thoughtful and so disciplined about capturing. He said, honestly, 60% of the stuff that I say, I don't even know what it means. It doesn't even make sense to me, but it doesn't matter because so much of the stuff that I end up documenting, I would not have remembered. You know, I had, I had a personal experience as I started studying this where, um, I learned it's really valuable to keep a notebook by your bedside table because at night you process in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. The brain, you know, sleep is kind of this amazing ability to synthesize information and connections. And sometimes you wake up with fresh thoughts and sometimes you go to bed, even as you're falling asleep, fresh connections will form. Well, I've got this notebook by my bedside table and I kind of have a desire to not be a hypocrite. So if I discover a tactic or, or tell somebody to do something, I need to do it myself. So I've been talking about the value of having a notebook by your bedside table. And then as I'm falling asleep, I get a solution to a problem I've been working on at Stanford. And the, the solution comes to me and immediately my first thought is, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. But then I thought, no, no, I should write it down. I should do my, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to keep telling people that they need to do this. So, and I kind of wrestled with myself, honestly, because for, you know, five minutes, I'm kind of, you know, chanting the idea to myself, seeing if I can remember it so I don't forget it, right? Finally, I roll over. I'm like, forget it. It's not worth it. I'm just going to write this thing down. So I write it down. 
kind of disrupt my sleep, right? I was comfortable. I got all the pillows situated, you know, and messed all that up, wrote it down. And then I go to sleep, you know, 15, 20 minutes later. Well, when I woke up in the morning, what's amazing is the idea was there. The first thing that I thought was this idea. And I go, my first thought was, oh my goodness, I knew I'd remember it, right? But then my next thought was I looked at the notebook. The idea that I had remembered was different than the idea I wrote down. I had a second totally novel solution to the problem. And if you had asked me, if you'd put a lie detector on me, I would have sworn it's the same idea that I woke up thinking about, right? And uh-huh. so the point there is we, we're just, we're, we overestimate our ability to remember. We overestimate our ability to, um, to hold these things. And so having a simple practice, as simple as keep a notebook by the bed does dramatic, does wonders for our ability to solve problems in novel ways. Well, let's talk about the two cognitive biases that you bring up. And I think that'll you know, make a perfect segue into the idea of experiments and, and mining for perspectives, because I think these biases probably affect those two things. Now, I'm starting to mm-hmm. see why you put these things in this order. Um, you talked about the anchoring bias and the creative cliff. So talk to talk to me about what those mean for people who are you know, not familiar with these ideas. Well, anchoring bias, I mean, it's it's one of the most foundational cognitive biases. And basically, it suggests that early thoughts tend to have a disproportionate weight on later thoughts, you know, and, and it's, it's the root of the Einstein effect I mentioned earlier. It's the root. It's the reason why we give up brainstorming on, you know, on I read one say said the average brainstorm yields two ideas, right? Because we tend to anchor and everything that we do kind of, we just recur back to that first thing we thought of. And, and furthermore, there's a, there's another study called the primal mark conducted by a researcher named uh, Jonathan Berg. And he found that the early ideas that a team had affected the ultimate trajectory of a brainstorm in terms of its not, its novelty and usefulness, which is to say early ideas matter. Okay. So that's kind of the anchoring bias or not that they necessarily should, but that they do matter. They do have an effect on a team. The uh, creative cliff is fascinating because what that study showed is that people systematically underestimate how long their creative ability will persist, meaning if you give them a challenge and you ask them over what rate will the creativity of your solutions degrade, there's almost a clip, you know, that, that they, they perceive at some point in time, they're just out of creativity. It just drops precipitously off a cliff. And yet the paper is actually called the creative cliff illusion because the truth is, as they study it, it's not true. Creativity doesn't degrade. In fact, that actually you can hit a creative ramp and the difference between people whose ideas are the, the entire set of ideas are lackluster and the entire set of ideas contain wonderful possibilities. One of the biggest predictors of what the difference would be is what a person's expectation is of when good ideas will come. Meaning mm-hmm. the researchers asked people before they started, when do you expect your, your best ideas to come? Do you expect them to come early? Do you expect them to come late? People who expected good ideas to come early tended to have worse ideas overall. People who expected good ideas to come late tended to have more ideas for sure, but also better ideas overall, which is to say it's, you know, our expectations have an enormous impact on the quality of the solutions that we generate. But for most people, they're because they're just looking for the one right answer, they don't even enable themselves to bypass anchoring or to or to hit the creative ramp because they've already in their mind, they've already got the answer. You know, it's funny you say that because like I was thinking about my thousand word a day, uh, you know, writing habit. And I often find that, you know, like the first seven, 800 words would be crap. And then suddenly I would get to like, you know, words 750. I'm like, wait a minute, this is the idea. And next thing I know, I turn out like 1500 words, which becomes an article like in 20 minutes. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. That's fascinating. So I that think- just makes sense. Like you gave me the science behind it now. And I think also being aware of that is, is hugely liberating, right? That's hugely empowering because you go, I'm going to sit down and do the work, not because I have the idea, but because the idea comes from the work. Yep. Right. And that's, I, I don't like, you know, that as a writer, if I sit down and do the work, the idea comes, I don't think people have the same appreciation when it comes to what's the answer to this HR problem, Mm -hmm. right? Or what's the answer to this financial services problem? They're, they're thinking about the answer, 
but you didn't say, what are the thousand words? You said, I'm going to generate a thousand words. And, and what I've discovered, as you said, is over the course of time, wow, 750 words in, I, I discover what the point is. And then I'm off to the races. Very few people give themselves the opportunity to get seven, you know, metaphorically speaking, 750 words into anything. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about experimentation. Um, this is one of those things, you know, uh, that has hugely influenced everything I've done because I mean, I think everything I've done starts out as a, a you know, what Peterson's calls little bets, like one by one. And it's funny because it, it, you look at some of the most prolific creators, all of them are experimental innovators, you know, from Chris Rock to, you know, even people at Apple like it. And yet I think, you know, when I hear people telling me they're about to dump a ton of money into something that has no demand or has been proven, I'm like, oh God, like this is doomed. Um, and I've made that mistake myself. Jeremy, did I lose you? No, no, I'm here. I, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm totally here. All right. Um, so let's get into this idea of experimentation. Like how do you conduct effective experiments? Yeah, for us, you, I mean, you, you got right at it in your question, right? This idea that it's got to cost a lot of money or it's got to be perfect. What we believe is that the, the most effective experiment is an experiment that can be conducted as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. And so that, that kind of flies in the face of a lot of organizational thinking because in organizations, there's bureaucracy, there's permission. And, you know, any one of these words here, you know, legal, compliance, permission, bureaucracy, those are just dollar signs, days on the calendar and dollar signs. And they dramatically ratchet up the expense of an experiment. And if experiments are expensive, then you can't afford many. And if you can't afford many experiments, you don't have much learning. And so if you just take that kind of logical sequence, what you need to do is if you want to accelerate learning, you've got to make experiments cheaper and faster to conduct. And when people start thinking in terms of scrappy experimentation, low resolution, low fidelity experimentation, then they're able to learn a lot. I mean, the goal is to create good data. Ultimately, you know, there's a lot of talk about big data in the world today, but we're advocates of, you might call it little data, meaning we're looking for small data sets of highly credible, b- believable information. You can survey 10,000 people and get re- 10,000 responses, and that might be a large data set, but it's largely unbelievable because the way you frame the questions and especially, you know, I've been the puppy dog eyed intern with a clipboard going to ask people if they like my boss's idea. And you know what everybody says? Put me down for a yes, buddy. You know, I, I really like it, right? Cause. I'm the puppy dog eyed intern asking people if they like my idea, right? And so you can gather a lot of data, but it doesn't mean it's good data. Good data, on the other hand, is actually, it's, 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 is a function of the ability to craft a clever experiment. And you can get really good data, even in smaller amounts that starts to give you directional understanding of the way you should go. If you just think about how can we do this more quickly? How can we do it more cheaply? How can we do it more believably? And how can we put people in a position where they're not telling us what they think? They're actually behaving and we're gathering data based on their decisions and their behaviors rather than their, you know, theories or hypotheses about what they would do. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into this idea of mining for perspective because you offer a number of different tactics uh, for mining for perspectives. And there's so many that we probably won't have time to get into all of them. But there are a couple that caught my attention. Uh, let's start with assumption reveal. What is that and how do people use it? Uh, oh, re- reversal. Assumption reversal. Assumption reversal, sorry. Assumption reversal is a fantastic way to test some of the things that you believe to be true. The reality is that our thinking gets constrained by what are known as uh, cognitive barriers or associative barriers. We make chains of association based on what we've known previously. And a lot of times that works, you know, it it works for us to be able to take these shortcuts. But when we're trying to do something new, chains of association actually become associative barriers because they, they blind us. They prevent us from seeing something other than what we expected to see. You can think about like the gorilla, you know, running through the video years, but when you're supposed to be counting how many times the ball gets passed, you don't notice the gorilla, right? It's very, I mean, it's the fundamental kind of biases at play there. And so, which is to say assumptions are a really big deal. And we, and the problem with assumptions is we don't know what our assumptions are. And Mm -hmm. so one of the ways that we challenge perspectives and help people shake up their perspectives is 
by doing what we call an assumption reversal, which is basically take something that you're trying to understand. You know, when the example that we give is your financial services company is working to understand youth and youth spending and savings behaviors. And they don't get it. They, they can't get youth to be investing money in their 401ks, et cetera. So we said, okay, let's go somewhere that the youth, that youth young people love and let's see what they do. And so we decided to go to a, you know, a tween store called Urban Outfitters. A lot of young people love to shop there. So we're standing there and we're looking for things that challenge our definitions of, of what a good customer experience is. And one of the things that we see is there's a young lady, you know, uh, basically rummaging in this bin of materials underneath another table. It's, it's, she's on her hands and knees. It's not like a, you know, it's not a pretty experience. And she's kind of rifling through this pile of stuff. And the senior executive that I was standing with, she said, See, like that, for example, we'd never put a, a, a bin of goods underneath a table and make a customer have to dig for it, right? And I said, okay, this is a perfect moment for an assumption reversal. We already know that Urban Outfitters knows something about this customer that we don't know, right? She said, yes. So I said, okay, let's assume that they've done that deliberately. This thing that challenges your definition of good customer service, they've done that deliberately. What is it? What can we learn about the customer if we assume that that's part of what they love about this experience? And she sat there for a second and she said, she wants a treasure hunt. This customer wants a treasure hunt. And I said, yeah, go on. She said, she wants to feel like she's the only person who could have found those earrings because she had to work so hard for it. I said, okay. And are there any implications of that on the, you know, savings project? She said, we can make a 401k, you know, like a, like a treasure hunt. Like you're the only person who could have ever created this portfolio. You're the only one who ever found the, you know, and it just flies in the face of everything they believe. But the point is an assumption reversal is simply going somewhere that appeals to someone or something that you're trying to understand, but don't. And then assuming the things in that space or that environment are built to appeal to that person that you've admitted you don't understand. All of a sudden, Things become apparent and, and, and assumptions you've made about what constitutes a good customer experience, for example, get challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you do offer a bunch of other uh, things here. You know, you talk about, you know, circles. I mean, assumption reversal is one of them. Uh, the other one I think that, you know, struck me so much was this idea of sort of a diversity of input. I mean, that, of course, is not new to me. I mean, my whole world is basically a diversity of input because I talk to, you know, such a wide range of people. Um, yeah. But, you know, you talk about, you know, making room for novices as well as, um, you know, this pen pal idea. So talk to me about those two ideas for mining for perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. So novices are a source of incredible potential. You know, there's there's a lot of premium placed on expertise and experience. But the thing about experts is while they can identify good questions, they actually can't ask them because of their knowledge, because of their familiarity with the status quo and convention. The thing about novices that's fascinating is they ask lots of questions, some of which are really spectacular and have the ability to reframe things. And so if you can put a pair of novice together with an expert, you get incredible potential to ask and identify a great question. And there's famous examples of this throughout history. If you think about Lockheed Martin's famous skunk works project, it ushered in the stealth bomber. The stealth bomber was created by a young mathematician. The designs were created by a young mathematician who challenged the status quo and using a obscure Russian formula, basically um, created a, a, a design specification for an aircraft that totally challenged what everyone in the aviation industry thought could fly. I mean, one of the aeronautics engineers at Skunk Works said, this guy should be burned at the stake. You know, I've got slide rules older than this kid. Who is he to tell us what a, they called, they called the stealth bomber the hopeless diamond for a long time because everyone was convinced <laughs> it wouldn't fly, right? It's a, it, but the point is, it took someone who doesn't know what's not possible to challenge the convention. You know, Linda Hill is an exceptional professor at Harvard Business School. She's the chair of their leadership program, and she's written a lot of great books. And when we interviewed her, she told us she always invites a 23-year-old to be a part of her writing team. 
because they challenge her. She, you know, and we're, we're sitting there talking to her and she said, and she turned around at her desk and she grabbed a, um, a pencil sketch of an octopus. She said, for example, the 23 year old on my writing team for this current project gave me this sketch because she believes it's a metaphor for organizational life. What does this make you think of? And I was, I was kind of dumbstruck in that moment because Linda Hill's an esteemed professor. She's an amazing researcher and academic. And yet, not only does she value a novice enough to put one on every writing team she's a part of, she also values a novice enough to put an artifact that she doesn't understand in the Zoom frame to provoke new conversations with, 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 with new collaborators, right? And to me, that being thoughtful about including a fresh perspective is a radically unfamiliar approach to a lot of people. Most people want to optimize for experience. And we'd say, if you're trying to do something new, make sure that in the portfolio of collaborators, there's some fresh perspective. And that's kind of the same idea ultimately or fundamentally of the pin pal, you know, tool. We talk about how Charles Darwin is he created one of the most imaginative leaps in scientific history. You know, he had a practice of writing letters. He wrote thousands and thousands of letters to hundreds of different collaborators across more than 10 different scientific fields. And he would, you know, it's long before word processing, he would literally cut pieces out of letters and paste them into other letters. But he was serving this process of exposing different perspectives to his ideas and to his work. And he allowed a lot of different angles and, and lights to be brought to bear on his thinking. And he was deliberate about it. And a lot of us, we go into a dark hole, into a dark tunnel to sit and focus. And what we say is when you're in need of a fresh solution, you should be looking up and saying, who can I talk to? What can I try? Where can I go to look? And that's, that's generally speaking, an attitude around seeking input. Inputs are what drive the outputs of our thinking. And yet when someone realizes they need a new output, doesn't very few people other than designers think in terms of seeking new inputs as a part of that process. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, with a contrast to that, you talk also about the fact that your creative breakthroughs um, occur when we stop struggling. So um, let's talk about sort of the the different forms of tactical withdrawal. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very counterintuitive to those of us who are kind of type A, you know, straight A, you know, I spent a lot of late nights just doing the homework as we talked about earlier. And so for me to discover, you know, take Danny Kahneman and Amos Tursky, two of the most breakthrough thinkers in psychology, they rewrote the, the laws of economic theory with some of their research. I mean, just really breakthrough thinkers. Um, if you look at what they did and it, their, their work output is a series of wildly inventive experiments. You know, they're, they are, crafting wildly inventive experiments that challenge some of our fundamental beliefs about human behavior and human nature. Well, how did they get to that wildly creative output? Well, if, if you know, a researcher asked Amos Tursky one time, how do you and Danny keep doing it? Keep designing these amazing experiments. He said, the secret to doing good research, and that's his field, but you could put any one of our fields in that blank, right? The secret to doing good teaching, the secret to doing good product development, whatever it is, right? The secret to doing good research is to always be a little underemployed. He said, you waste years when you can't waste hours. And he was referring to the fact that he and Kahneman would take these long kind of ambling walks along the paths at Hebrew University where they were rising stars there in Jerusalem. And to their, to their department, they were derided as they were wasting time, right? But to the rest of us, the world, they were reinventing economic theory, but things like taking a walk, you know, Albert Einstein would pick up his violin and play his violin. Thomas Edison would take a nap. Joyce Carol Oates, when she's stuck, she says there's always an idea waiting for her on the hill behind her house. And so she goes up to get the idea, right? It's kind of a, you know, fantastical belief. But the point is she, she knows that taking a break is sometimes what she needs to do. And I think there's a lot of us in the professional world who go, we measure our productivity or our effectiveness by efficiency. And the truth is that creative thinking and, and generating novel solutions isn't about being efficient. It's about being effective. And sometimes the most effective thing you can do is step away deliberately. Wow. Well, um, well, this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, you filled it with so many tactical insights that people can use. So I want to finish with one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
what is it that makes someone or somebody unmistakable? For me, there's this moment where you go, I could have thought of that. I think is a, is a really great, simple definition, right? I, why didn't I do that? Right. The person who does what everybody, when they see it goes, why didn't I do that is unmistakably creative. Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book and everything that you're up to? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I would say we've got a great book website, ideaflow.design. If folks head there, we've made a free bonus chapter available called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs, a couple of our favorite breakthrough thinkers. So you can check that out on ideaflow.design. And then I also blog every day on my own personal website, jeremyutley.design. And I share tips and insights and counterintuitive insights from uh, from my own study and practice of creativity there. So jeremyutley.design, ideaflow.design. And I, and also I'm on Twitter. Folks can, can follow me on Twitter as well. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.